So uh, we've been in the book of James um, for our summer series. One of, one of the things we've been doing, we're doing a book study. Uh, we've been preaching through the book of James. And uh, James is not a, <laughs> James, I think James was kind of like a serious guy. I think, I think he was a no-nonsense kind of individual. He didn't take just, you know, he didn't take no crap from no one, if I can say it like that. He, he was like, man, I'm going to tell you the truth and I'm going to set the record straight on how we are to be living. The book of James is like a, a no-nonsense guide to how-tos, the how-tos of Christianity. And if you, will, if you will read James, you almost cannot read James and not do James, do the words. It's, it's like it's so practical. And so we want to look at it some more today. We're in chapter 4 and next week will be the last book that we, the last chapter we look at. Um, but let me quickly remind you, James 1 to 3, what we've been hearing, what we've been seeing. And James 1, he basically says, don't blame God for what you're going through. Take responsibility for your own sinful desires that tempt you. And start appreciating the hardships of life that, for what they produce in you. You remember that one? Esther preached on that one. James 2, he candidly exposes the hypocrisy in our hearts. And he calls us to prove our claim to faith through our actions that are consistent with it. I mean, it's just a no-nonsense guide, right? Uh, don't tell me. What's that saying? Talk is cheap. Money buys a whiskey, right? Talk is cheap. Come on, y'all. Don't tell me that, that, that we can't say something like that in the church. I'm not saying go buy whiskey. It's just a saying. <laughs> You do know that saying. It just shocked you that somebody said it in church. <laughs> We're kind of a real church, so don't take light to sin, but it doesn't mean that we don't know what's going on in the world. We have to present the Word of God in a way that makes sense to people, right? James 3 challenges the hypocrisy in our hearts again, and it Basically, says our speech exposes the condition of our hearts. How we talk, what we say. A while back, we spoke about cynicism and how, how easy it is for us to just be cynical about life and say stupid things that cancel out the prayers that we just prayed. He says, no, rather direct your tongue. The only way that you can control your tongue is by directing it. You can't control it and contain it. You have to give it something productive to do. Otherwise, it will literally explode in stupid things you have to direct it you have to give it the proper things to say and so the wisdom that comes from above is what we have to direct our tongues and use our speech to then create around us what we want to see have conversations about things that matter get a get out from this this plane of conversation where we're just discussing other people the whole time and where we're just discussing meaningful, uh, meaningless things and just constantly calling up problems. But let's start discussing ideas that leads to solutions. Let's start discussing uh, how God's ways will improve things. Like I said, a no-nonsense guide to the how-tos of Christianity. James 4 deals with conflict, or should I say, the thrakas of life, right? <laughs> We all face conflict. Nobody likes conflict. Even the guy that is conflict prone 
will, after the moment of outburst of anger, feel a little bit of little bit of disgust about the situation that just happened. Maybe not take responsibility for it and change it. Maybe blame the other person, you know, for causing him to get into that state. But the fact is, nobody really loves conflict. Um, and if you do, then it's basically a deviation from what is normal and healthy. <laughs> Conflict is hard. But James is very blunt in James 4 about the source of our conflict. He's blunt, but it's very helpful that we start realizing what we're dealing with so we can start doing something about it and deal with conflict in a healthy way. Let me just say this. Conflict can be good. Conflict actually can lead to deeper, more intimacy than you've ever had. But because we've not been taught how to handle conflict, conflict usually leads to destruction. We can overcome the pressures of conflict by identifying where it comes from, its source, and also identifying the source of conflict resolution that can help us to work through conflict that leads to further and deeper intimacy. So when we do marriage counseling, we usually start at, at the same place with everybody. Tell us what happened. Why are we here? Explain the situation to us. From your perspective, let us help us understand what has caused us to be in this place of conflict. What's the main reasons for the difficulties that you have with one another? And we'll usually spend a good time just letting everybody get that off their chest. It's like a decompression moment. You know, when you step into counseling, marriage counseling, it's often it's a, it's a very highly emotional moment. Probably took a whole bunch of conflict to even just get to that place where you're in counseling, sitting with somebody and starting to discuss it. So there has been just so much going on. And so what we'd like, what we'd like to do is we'd like for it to just decompress for a second. But in the past, what we used to do is we used to then... After we've heard everything, and look, <laughs> the responses are often, um, often similar. It's, got, it's either got something to do with unfaithfulness or negligence or even at times just practical things like money, sex, or, 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 or maybe the, even the in-laws or, um, uh, you know, there, there's such a wide range, uh, a range of things as possible, but there are a couple of, you know, Regular culprits, that, that usual suspects in, 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 in conflict that we see. But despite the fact that it's, there are similarities to, to, to people's um, uh, you know, struggles, it, the, what this guy did and what she did and he said and she said and all that, that all is so diversely different. And every single person, people, you know, couple that comes to us, it's like, it's like stepping into their world of confusion and chaos for a second. And then after they've said their piece, it's like we're the counselors, right? So that we're responsible for now trying to start creating order out of the chaos. How many of you know that that's overwhelming? That can lead to somebody just burning out on other people's problems, not even just their own. And so we've learned to take a different approach when it comes to 
conflict management and conflict resolution. Because if we would try to untangle that mess every single time somebody comes with a relational mess, it would literally overwhelm us and we would be running around like headless chickens trying to make sense of that. It will just be too much. And I think James also says something of the sort here. It's like, look, it's, it's, conflict is, is, is complex. Yes, it is. It's diverse. It, it's, it's, every single person feels my situation is completely unique and novel, which means that nobody else has something similar to this. And albeit not true, the fact is that's my perception, it's my reality. And, and I need somebody to at least treat my situation with the, the, you know, with the value that it requires, the, the, the input and the, the attention it requires for me to make sense of what to do next, how to move forward. But in that in that chaotic moment, that entangled mess of, you know, just things that were said and things that were done and other external things that played a role, we have to, le- we have to learn to discern what is really the, the, the big source of the conflict. Because if we don't start addressing that first, trying to figure out what to do with all the ta- entanglement is literally impossible. It's literally impossible. And so you're going to find yourself in conflict situations in life where you are presented with chaos. And the, the natural, you know, we, we don't like chaos. So we either run away from it, but sometimes we don't have the option to run away from it. In fact, if we want the relationship to last or to go somewhere, we have to figure out the, conflict, the, the chaos. And James is going to give us a guide. He's going to give us a way to start approaching conflict that will at least put us in the right frame of mind, give us the right stance and orientation to be able to start addressing things constructively and make sense of God's kingdom and how God's kingdom brings resolution to conflict. So it's absolutely necessary that we do iron out the the details it is necessary but if you try start with all the details he said she said he did they did let me tell you you're bound for failure conflict doesn't get resolved when you delve into the details immediately james shows us that conflict is essentially a result of our fallen nature and i'll say how that translates into practice just a second but because it's part of our fallen nature, it literally affects every part of our lives. It affects every part of our lives. And there are so many aspects of conflict that we can call it. It's not just marriages, even though I did use a marriage analogy in the beginning. We can have conflict at our workplaces, employees with their employers and vice versa. We can have conflict between our, our parents and their kids and kids with their parents and siblings with one another and you know colleagues with one another conflict exists literally everywhere guess what you can also have internal conflict you can have internal conflict where you become so mad at yourself and angry at yourself or disappointed at yourself unforgiving toward yourself that you struggle to find a you know productive way forward in your own internal mess James 4 verse 2, and don't go to the slide yet, but James 4 verse 2 says that conflict can literally arise in, in an instant. Verse 2 says this, it's like, you desire and you do not have, 
and so you murder. I'm like, well, that escalated fast. <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> it's like you, you desire something, you didn't have it, and so I'm like, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I mean, if you remember Ahmed, the dead terrorist, I'll kill you. <laughs> it's like it can escalate so fast. And so we have to learn how to deal with conflict, or we will just not make it in life. Let me say something about my outsider's perspective of American culture. Will you all allow me to just say something from, a, from an outside perspective? So for those of you who don't know, I'm from South Africa, and we're by no means perfect, okay? So let me just not say, let me just say, I'm not, I'm not coming from a, a place of, you know, higher ground or anything, but it's me coming into a culture that I need to learn. I need to understand it better and better. And so I'm, I'm seeing things that are different. And, I'm, you know, we're, we're, as a missionary, you're always a cultural um, learner, a student. Uh, you'll, you'll always learn more about the new culture that you're in. And so one of the things that I've observed is that um, Americans see conflict as a competition. And I have to win it. Not all cultures do that. Um, I think the letter W in the alphabet is by far the favorite letter of Americans. We have to get that W. And it shows up in so many things in our lives. It shows up in our pursuit of success. It shows up in our, you know, everything. And, and although I do love a healthy competition, I do like, and I am competitive by nature, I also realize that there are some things in life where if you work in a kingdom mindset, that it says those who are first will be last. <laughs> and those who are last will be first. The kingdom's way is often different than our culture's ways. And so when it comes to conflict, I just want you all to know that in America, our knee-jerk reaction is probably not a kingdom reaction. It's probably not the way that God wants us to approach conflict. And so just to become self-aware of that, that my natural, ingrained, um, my nurtured response because of the environment that I've been in, immersed in my whole life, whether it was my home life, my school life, my sports team life, my consuming of media and, 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 and other cultural life aspects has probably conditioned me so that I want to win immediately when a challenge is presented in a, in a, in a situation. And so in a sense, as a culture, we almost... We're working from, a, we're working from a, a, almost like a, a minus one perspective when it comes to building conflict resolution because our culture has already designed us with the wrong orientation toward conflict. Just, just, just by, by default, that's our default setting is I'm going to approach conflict as a competition to try and win. And what we're going to see here is that um, conflict actually requires something different. Conflict resolution, sorry, requires a different um, approach for it to become um, really a place where we can start building resolution 
and, and restoring relationship. So in our study in James 4, we're going we're gonna to find two sources of our conflict. And then we're going to see the solution that, that the Bible presents to us, uh, which becomes our source of conflict resolution. How to work through conflict. Right, so James 4 verse 1. Let's read it together. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So the first point James make here is that the source of relational conflict is an innate desire to please self over a desire to please God. A desire to please self over a desire to please God. Now, let me, this is so ingrained in our culture, even in South Africa, in most of the world. This is human nature. Right? And unless your culture has had a, um, a redemptive uh, uh, influence on it, then every culture basically in the world will struggle with this thing because human nature wants to put ourselves on the throne of our lives at all times. And he says the source of relational conflict is a desire to please ourselves, but it's not just to please ourselves over other people. It's a desire to please myself over a desire to please God. He says, for if we desired to please God, it would have resulted in us actually coming, approaching God with our requests, with our needs, with our desires. In a matter that we needed something, we would have come to God and says, God, can you help me? Can you provide this? Can you be the source of, uh, of, 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 of provision in this matter. But because we really desire to please ourselves, we don't even want necessarily God's input on it because what if he says no? And you know that you know, God, God says one of three answers, yes, no, or not now. And two of them we don't really like. And so if we, if we don't check our desire, who do we truly want to please, we will default fall into a desire to please self. And therefore, we will exclude God from situations that require His presence and His involvement for it to resolve. So if we have this desire to please self, then something arises on the inside of our hearts that we call entitlement. I feel I deserve this. I feel this should be what I get. And that entitlement becomes my justification for my actions. It becomes my justification. So I use that to, to, to justify sometimes even sinning. Because I should be having that, right? Now that I've established that fact that I should have that, it makes whatever I get to do, what I have to do to get there, it makes it okay. The second thing it does, it actually blinds me to who my true provider is. Last week we said, um, if we're, if, which one was it? Was it, was it number two or number three where we said that um, when we're not, obeying God's word, we're actually revealing that we tr we're, 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 we're actually depending on our own strengths. 
In this also we see, if we're not knowing God in these matters, what we're actually saying is that, hey, I got this. I got this. I can do this on my own. But we don't realize is that God is actually our provider. Um, and if we don't depend on Him for the provision in the moment, then we have to depend on our own devices, which now is pitted up against another human being. And so where are we at? We're back at competition. The strongest will survive. I'm going to dominate you because I need to get what I want, what I should have. Well, the other person feels the same. Well, I should also be having, and so I'm going to try to dominate you. And so what you have is you have a con continuous escalation of attempts to try and subdue one another, and we call that a fight. The last thing it does is it actually makes, if we do pray, like he says, you ask, and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. It makes our prayers demands to God to subject himself to our will. And then when he does not submit to our requests and give us what we asked, we blame him for not being good or not being truthful or not... You know, living up to his word. Because we're very good in the religious society to even sometimes use the word of God against him. But God, you say in your word. But see, if our hearts are first and foremost <laughs> in the disposition of self-pleasing, then you can use all the scriptures you want in prayer. God's not going to listen. Because the order is completely wrong. So at the heart of all relational conflicts, maybe not all of it, but most of relational conflict, it's really a failure to please God from one party or even both. Now, when it is one party, it becomes a little more difficult because one party might be wanting to please God and the other party isn't. And guess what's going to happen then? Well, that's going to be rough. But until both parties submit to this thought that my heart needs to live for a desire to please God first and foremost, the conflict's not going to resolve. And that's where we need to start dealing with the conflict. Whatever results, the fruit of the conflict, I mean, that's a secondary conversation. And essentially, the person who is pleasing God and who is living with their heart rightly oriented to God and being conditioned to this conflict is resolved to a place of faith, patience, trust in the Lord, and prayer to see the situation turn. And if it becomes abusive, the need might be for that person to step out of the immediate context of that conflict. It might well be the best thing they can do in that moment. But continue to not use this person's unwillingness to want to please God to become a justification for me to now also not please God and all of a sudden stand up and now sin on my own regard. If you find yourself in a position where you're 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 being drawn into conflict because what you perceive to be another party's 
unwillingness to want to please God, then you have to, like the Bible says, those who reckon that they are standing must be so careful that they don't fall. Because it's so easy to use that minute and justify your own sinful reactions. So what do we need to do? We have to cut to the heart of the matter and address our selfish desires. And you almost, you almost can be guaranteed that when you're in a moment of conflict, if you're the person initiating the conflict, then there's probably a selfish motive behind that. Sometimes it's a little difficult because how do I contend for something that is true and right without it resolving in conflict? It's not easy. It's not simple. It's complex. But we have to check first here. Is me coming to this situation? Am I coming because I'm coming from a righteous stance? This is what the Bible says. And I want to honor God by living this and by doing this. Even in matters where, I'm, you know, where, where, where injustice is being done unto me, I can, I can either rise and stay in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a place of holiness or I can drop to the same level And also sin. You can sin as a victim of conflict. But you can also sin as somebody that is contentious, that wants for themselves and can't check their selfish desires and has to dominate those around to get what they want. So this thing of conflict cuts both ways. Nobody is exempt, doesn't matter what situation you, is, you are in, that we have to check our selfish desires to prevent us from positioning ourselves in a way so that conflict is unable to get resolved. Positioning yourself rightly is the only chance you have of the conflict eventually leading to a point of resolution. But I've seen it so many times. Two parties come into conflict with one another. And often it's one party that does the first thing wrong. And instead of approaching that conflict with mindfulness about what happens next will determine whether I'm going to add logs to the fire or whether I'm going to quelch the situation and bring us to a place where we can actually have constructive conversation. We take that and we justify our action to get back. Because why? Because if I let that person continue, I don't get the W. I have to win and I have to win now. James then takes it a little deeper. He says that not only does our selfish ambition um, lead us to have, let me just say it right, uh, uh, the selfish it's the, ambition is the source, or the selfish desire is the source of the conflict. Having a desire to please myself over pleasing God actually leads me to having conflict with God himself. I am now put in a position of conflict against God. James 4 verse 4 says the following. It says, you adulterous people, 
do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Following the world's way of trying to resolve relational conflict makes me an enemy of God. Why? Because I'm opposing his ways to deal with conflict. Now, let me tell you this, that relationship is one of the most important things in the kingdom of God. But not only is it important in the kingdom of God, if we will learn how relationships lead to success in life, we will, we will be much further along the way in our world. Honoring people, respecting people, and serving people, and loving people, they're all relational um, uh, 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 concepts are what gives you the most favor and the, 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 the most success in life. I just had a, um, a testimony this week of one of the, one of the um, people in our, in our church who uh, um, he's in a management position at his job um, and he, um, he was asked by one of his superiors to come and help on a job that he does not get paid for. And instead of demanding pay for it, he went along and, and basically said, hey, the company's success, it means something to me. I care about you guys. And, and whatever you guys are struggling with, hey, if I can help, I'll help. It doesn't always have to be money, money, money for me. I can come and help. And he, and he went about helping them completely for free with no strings attached, no, no expectation. Just because he has been actually reaching out to these people with his faith, trying to make them see that, you know, a real living relationship with God is, is possible. And what they've been experiencing as religion is actually dead and non-effectual to their lives. But having a relationship with God is where, that's where the real, you know, the real joy of life lies. And, and he, as, a, as in the company, uh, uh, you know, a person that's working under them have been carefully just testifying to them, challenging them when they're on their perspectives about faith, about God, about the Word. And this round here, he got to serve without an expectation of getting any income. And it, the most incredible thing happened. The people that he ended up helping because of the problem they ended up communicating back to him how absolutely blown away they were at the fact that he did it for free. That he did it because he wanted to help, because he was willing to just give. And it, it's amazing how in the world, the world don't understand that language. They don't understand love. But if we will share love with the world, let me tell you, our testimony Will, 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 it will jolt their hearts. And they appreciated what he did. And, 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 and they even said to them, look, th we would love more of this in our company. And, and, and I can't say what that led to just yet, but the bottom line is, is that they were so blown away by the fact that he would care enough to just give. But if we align ourselves with the world's system of dealing with things, dealing with conflict, 
then we're actually going against what the kingdom devises, uh, advises. And it makes us become in conflict with God. And if we're in conflict with God, our lives literally goes nowhere. So in the, last couple, in the next couple of verses, verses 5 to 10, it's this second conflict that James then starts honing in on. This becomes the main topic. Yes, I know the personal desires makes you go in conflict with people around you. But really, if you don't correct that selfish desires to want to please me over pleasing God, that leads to a greater conflict, a conflict with God, that if that conflict does not resolve, no other conflict will be able to actually uh, productively be sorted out. And so what, it, what, he, what he then starts talking about is how do we address this? How do we sort out this fact that we have come into opposition with God? And verse 5 says this. says this. Do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? It's, it's almost like a, it's almost like it's, it's, it's like, it's like a, an atmosphere change that takes place here. The verse four literally calls them, you adulterous people. It's a, it's a, you know, he's so strong and he says like, you know, you have made yourself an enemy with God. And in the very next verse, it's like the atmosphere entirely changes. He says, don't you know that God loves you? Don't you know that God yearns earnestly to have a deep, close relationship with you? God does not want to be in conflict with you. So earlier I said, when you experience a moment of conflict, you have a decision. You can either add fuel to the flame or you can de-escalate it. And you can make sure to not make the same mistake by going and escalating the, the temperature. I think that's what God is doing here. He's de-escalating. He says, don't you know that I love you? I want to be close to you. I want to be next to you. I don't want to be in opposition to you. It's an affirmation of his love. And, and actually, it's actually, I, I see it as, it's almost a vulnerable admission of God. Right? It's almost him saying, look, I, I desire so much that you, that you be with me. He's, he's not standing up and just trying to dominate and win. He's appealing. He's lowering his voice. He's lowering his 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 emotion and and and, and it's switching it up to, to to let us understand that look my heart is not against you i am for you a hundred percent and he's willing to to deal with and overlook any sin and failure that we've had for wanting to please him he's willing to right there and then just say, look i'll overlook all that i'll push it aside because i want to motivate you to come back and connect with me again because it's as you do that, that we start the setup for dealing with the conflict that is between us. Verse 6 says this, but he gives more grace. More grace. 
And therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's like he's literally saying, I'm stretching out my hand right now. If you would take my hand, I would yank you out of that complicated plane of living. And I will set you up for success in dealing with the situation that you're finding yourself in. Let me take you out of the chaos first. And let me bring you back, not in opposition to me, but let me bring you back next to me. Then you and I united in relationship, in harmony with one another. Then I can show you how you're going to deal with this situation. But that's the first thing that needs to happen in all matters of conflict. Is you have to exit the chaos. But if you choose to engage that chaos, let me tell you you'll soon find yourself in opposition to God's ways. Because you're going to use your justified, you're going to use your entitlement, you're going to justify it the way you can act however you'd like and see fit. It doesn't matter if it is also sinning. And that is not going to please God. And He does not take part of that. And you can pray all you want, He won't honor that prayer. Because you're praying that from a selfish point of view. I want mine. I'm going for the win. And he's saying, I tell you what, you leave the win up to me. Step back. Turn back to me. And I will help you how to move forward in this. He's in effect asking us, will you humble yourself? Not Will you elevate yourself and try to win? Will you humble yourself and let me help you? Let me come alongside of you. Because me and you together, we're a majority. It's the picture of the elephant and the ant, right? Crossing a wooden bridge. And the ant is on the elephant's ear. And is whispering into the elephant's ear, Hey elephant, we're sure making this bridge creak, aren't we? (laughs) You and God, you're a majority. But if you're trying to cross that bridge on your own, it's going to take a long time. You probably won't even get there. James is trying to help us to see that conflict can only resolve if first the bigger conflict is resolved. And that is, is is my heart aligned with the will of God? Or am I just fighting for my own will? Because as long as you're still just fighting for your own will, the conflict, it's not going to resolve. Now, let me just say something to those of you who feel like, man, you know, I'm in a situation where I'm always the victim. And the person who is in conflict with me shows absolutely no desire to want to please God. What do I do? I can't be a doormat. I can't just be thrown hither and thither by this person's will. It's becoming abusive. I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. 
And what I think James is saying here is not that you just have to accept that. No, I think what he's saying is that you be cautious. That in your, in your consideration, in your assessment of the situation, you don't fall into the same trap as what the perpetrating party is falling into. It's like, my boss is just so mean to me always. My teacher is just so horrible to me, towards me. She has her favorites, and she just doesn't like me. And so I become subversive. I stir. Why? Because I don't want to be, I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose in this interaction. God is saying, be careful. Be careful. And you know what? If you will allow me to come alongside you, you and me, we will become a majority. I will uphold you in this thing. And I will help you to walk forward to a place where the conflict can start resolving. I will show you what you need to argue. I will show you what you need to contend. I will show you what you need to present. I will show you how to approach the situation. But the minute you try going at it in your own strength, now it's a battle. Boom, 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 boom. And before you know it, what could have been resolved with good and proper conversation, now where conversation breaks down, war breaks out. And we know war never leads to anything good. There is way more lost in war than there even was in the beginning in the conflict. And so what God is saying is, I am trying to minimize the destruction of the conflict in your life. Because we're going to experience conflict for sure. But if you will allow me to lead you through conflict, the conflict's destruction will be minimized. And can God prevent all destruction? No, He can't, because we're still making our own decisions, right? And so, so often we've tried to help people. We tell them, look, we see that this was a, a, a horrible situation that you guys have been thrown into by either the actions of one or both. doesn't matter how it came there. The fact is that it's, it's here right now. And if we don't follow God's way of bringing a resolution to this, there are greater losses to be experienced Guaranteed. So within the, in the chaos and in the already hurt and disappointment, we sometimes think this is the worst that could have happened. No. The worst that can happen is if you follow your own mind in this. And it leads not just to a fight with knives, but now all of a sudden we're throwing atom bombs at each other. If we follow God's way of dealing with the conflict, it might not resolve immediately, but you will be preserved until the time of resolution. So God communicates through James with us. He says, this is what I want you to do. Point number one, I need you to submit your will to the will of God. I mean, this is, this is really Christianity 101, right? This is Christianity 101. It's Jesus as Lord. And James is just reiterating that 
God's processes produces God's products. We cannot aim for God's products and try and think we're going to produce it through our own ways, our own reasoning, our own thinking. God's product is produced by His process. And so when Jesus came to earth, He didn't just come to save us from this earth. He came to bring His spiritual kingdom order to this earth. And that if you and I will obey His processes, that order will come into our lives. And it will bring fixing. It will bring healing. It will bring the resolution that you and I seek. The kingdom of God. You see, we often talk, we think of Christianity as being a religion. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a government. It's a kingdom. Jesus said, go preach the kingdom. Preach the kingdom. What does that mean? It means that there is a king who is now in charge. And he has an order. And he has ordinances. And he makes decrees as to how he wants it. And because he's king... It's not a democracy, y'all. Christianity is not a democracy. It's a kingdom. It's a theocracy. Which means that the word of the king is by de facto law. How some presidents of the years would have loved that power. <laughs> right? Any president in all of humanity might have wanted that. Except George Washington I. No, no. Who was the first guy? The first president? was George Washington, right? Come on, you and your American history. Well done, son. I'm going to be encouraging myself right here because room's real quiet today. <laughs> Makes me scared, y'all. Um, they wanted to make, y'all know the story? They wanted to make him king, right? Out there in Mount Vernon, where he was living, he said, you need to be our king because the the, the, the pommies over the pond, they have a, 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 a king. We need a king. And he's like, no, no, no. I'll be president for four years and that's it. One term, y'all, and he handed it off. And he went back to farming. I don't know why I said that, but I was just good. I'm just like, maybe I'm boasting a little about my history buffness. Come on. All right. Coming back to the theocracy. God's will is our way. And if we follow his way, it leads to his outcomes. That's, that's what James is saying. Be willing to submit your will. Now, here's the most difficult thing to do. When you're in a moment of high emotion and low clarity, to go, okay, Lord, let your will be done. <laughs> no. Why? Because we have to remember, we're starting from minus one. Some of us minus five. I'm going to win this sucker. Self-awareness, so important. Realize that conflict is not a competition. James is guiding us in the steps that God wants us to take. For us to be able to come alongside God again. To allow God to be with me a majority that helps, to deal, that helps me deal with the situation. That can bring resolution to the chaos. That can help me process through the diverse um, complications of the event that occurred that caused the conflict. So that I can keep acting righteous. So I can keep acting according to His ideas that will lead to the outcome that I desire. The outcome that I seek. 
But if at any minute I decide to just follow my own way, I am essentially turning around and I am not alongside God anymore. I'm opposing Him. He says, no, no, no. Come, come. I love you. I desire to have closeness with you. I just, I'm yearning. I'm jealous, God. I want your inside motivation, intention to be turned toward me and me first. Because if that is the case, you have your best chance of working through this in a productive manner. Verse 7 says, we have to submit our wills to the will of God and trust His outcomes. And y'all, this is a difficult one because sometimes His outcomes takes a little longer than what would have happened if I just dominated the situation. But let me just say this to you. If you ended up dominating the situation and you did get your win, did you really win? Or did you just set yourself up for a bigger loss later? That is usually the case. The second thing verse 7 teaches us that we need to reject the offer of the enemy to just have immediate satisfaction in the moment. Because it's a lure, it's a little trick, it's a little hook that he will, he will, he will get you with. And when he gets you on that hook, now he can pull you in all sorts of directions because you've taken the bait. To try and fix it on your own. Resist that. Right? Resist that. Speeding up a bit. Verse 8 says, draw near to God. Draw near to God. And if there's anything that we love to teach people in this church is how to know God. How to build friendship with God through Jesus Christ. How to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit that makes God become real to me. How to interact with him that, that, that invites him into my life. He says, if you draw near to me, then I will draw near to you. How many of you love, loved um, hanging out with your parents when you were kids? Okay, kids don't answer this one. Okay, I'm going to let you off the hook for this one. But adults, how many of you loved hanging out with your parents when you were kids? Okay, of those same people that loved hanging out with their parents, how many of your parents gave you work when you were in their presence? I used to love hanging out with my dad. But what I hated was whenever I was in my dad's presence, I always got work to do. What he's saying is draw near to me, but realize that when we draw nearer to God, that we're coming in <laughs> into the presence of dad. And dad has stuff to do. Dad is not sitting oddly still and just waiting for the end of times to come. No, dad is on a mission to seek and save the lost. That if you get into his presence, guess what's going to happen? Your whole mindset is going to start turning toward the mission that dad is on. Your whole attitude is going to be influenced by the mission that dad is on. Your activities are going to change. Why? Because dad's activities are different than what I used to do when I was just lazily sitting by doing nothing. If you draw near to God with the right heart, you see what we draw near to God is we draw near to God because we think He's the genie in the bottle, right? And we think He's just going to grant our wishes. 
the opposite is actually true, is that when we come into his presence, we come to bow before the king. And we say, not my will be done, but yours. But if we will do that, y'all, life gets sorted out. Your conflict gets resolved. The issues gets solved. It's not instant because I think God loves slow cookers more than he loves uh, 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 microwaves. You know, he's in the, in the slow cooking business, but um, sometimes he uses pressure cookers as well. You know, you can get the same result with both, right? One is, one is just hard to be under, but for the most part, God is just in slow cooking. And, and you coming to him is you presenting your will to him and saying, Lord, here's what I desire, but I'm coming to you and asking you for it. And, and, and I want you to know that in your time, in your way, in your will. And I'm going to be faithful. And I'm going to be a participant with whatever you're doing. How many of you ever got in trouble with the law? Oh, this is going to be a bad one. While you were doing something that your dad asked you to do. I need to see that hand. Come on. <laughs> Robert, really? <laughs> All right. I'll check with your mom about this. <laughs> but by generality, let's just say this. You don't get in trouble with the law when you're doing something with your dad. Unless dad is, you know, um, that guy. Um, <laughs> How many of you know that God wants us to have this relationship with Him where it's not just about performing religious activities, but He wants to be involved in every aspect of our lives. And if you will draw near to Him, guess what? He comes alongside every single thing that you are doing. And let me tell you, when the favor of the Lord is behind you in your workplace, when the favor of the Lord is behind you in your, uh, in your sports team or in your class, when the favor of the Lord is next to you, there is nothing that man can do to keep you back. You will pop to the top. If you've got the favor of God next to you, it's like a beach ball being suppressed. At some point, it's going to get out. It might be a little while. It might get a little tight. It might get a little scary there for a second. But let me promise you this. You will rise to the top. He will lead you to victory. But that victory is not necessarily going to look like always what we think it will look like. James 4 verse 9 describes a scenario where even if it feels like we're going through death or great loss to give up my entitled position, um, to be able to let God lead and submit my will to Him and, and, and draw near to Him and be involved with what He is and do things the way He wanted to do, that if we will do that, we have that guarantee. That the seeming loss we experience in the moment will only last but a moment. The Bible says that 
Sorrow may last for the night, but the joy of the Lord comes with the morning. And the morning always comes, y'all. No matter how scary the night is, the morning always comes. You see, God wants more of us because he wants more for us. And if we will give everything to him, he can start building that which we really want, the life we really want. But it requires us to come into lordship, under his lordship. The last point I'm making today is that verse 10 says, we must humble ourselves in his sight and then he will exalt us in the right way. One of the biggest reasons why our conflict is ever escalating with things and places and people around us is because we refuse to humble ourselves. But what does he say? He says, humble yourself in front of the person who is in conflict with you. No, humble yourself in his sight. So what are you doing? You're not, you're not becoming a doormat. You're asking Jesus, how do you want me to approach this? What do you want my reaction to be? Lord, my, I want to bite this guy's head off right now. I want to punch his nose to the back of his face. That is what I want to do. But I will submit my will to you. And I will not punch him. I will not lash back at him. I will not take action that you do not approve of. So I'm coming to you. Thank you that you invite me into your presence. Lord, I need your help. And I can't deal with this myself. Please come into my situation and guide me. Tell me what you want me to do next. Humility is the path to conflict resolution. Because humility will rightly value God above self and so the world's way of doing things loses its attraction to me humility caused me to pursue godliness in the midst of conflict so that i don't add fuel to the fire i actually reduce the fire so that we can start working through the mess and here's another thing humility does amazingly humility will rightly value the desire of the opposing party. When it's a competition, I don't care what you want. I just want what I need. But when we do it God's way, I am listening for what is it that you're not getting, that you're mad at me for not giving. And see, when I have control over my emotions and my response like that, now I can have right thinking. Right thinking. The Bible says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. In other words, it's not about rules and regulations, do's and don'ts. It is about the righteousness of God. It's about the joy of the Lord, the, the peace of the Lord, and the joy of the Holy Spirit. 
Righteousness, peace, and joy. That is what the kingdom of God is about. First and foremost, righteousness. What is that? That means that I am not fighting my sin myself in my own power through trying to do good works. I have submitted that to God through Jesus Christ and accepted his salvation. He saved me. But it's not where that ends. Righteousness also means that doesn't in every single situation that I'm faced now moving forward, I am still not fighting that in my own strength with my own works and my own attempts. I am also submitting that to his way of doing things. And Jesus' salvation therefore saves me in every situation. Colossians 3 says this, as you, has as you have received Christ as Lord, so continue to walk in Him. In other words, it's not just for salvation that I receive Him as Lord, but it's also for conflict that I receive Him as Lord. It's for decisions that I receive Him as Lord. It's for everything in life that I need to do, I receive Him as Lord. Why does that mean I follow His way of bringing the product, the end product? The first product is salvation. The rest of the product is kingdom life, kingdom order, this side of the grave, where my life changes to look like heaven more and more and more and more and more until the day I die, never going back. Why? Because the kingdom's light is progressing in my life ever more as until noonday, says, says the psalm. Okay? So when I do that, I am, in, I am in my right mind. I have got sound mind. And I can actually consider some of the things the person is saying. And I can try and figure out what are they missing so that I can start thinking, how can we give this person what they want? Because if I am humble and this is not a competition, I don't want to just win alone. I want both of us to win. And now I can start asking good questions that lead to actual untangling of the mess that we might discern. How will this work for you? How will this work for me? Can we get together to a win-win situation? In conclusion, James is telling us to leave the dealing um, to James is telling us that if we, if, we, if we place ourselves in humility, all of a sudden we will actually value the other person's needs and desires right. We won't value it more than what we value God, but we will value it right. And now we can start contending for their needs as well. Why? Because if we're Christians and children of God, then we love all people. I want people around me to experience God's love. I don't want people around me to live in conflict with me. I want them to see the goodness of God. And how will they see the goodness of God from a Christian in a moment of conflict? It's when they see that Christian start to contend for their desire, contend for their need to be fulfilled. But not from a place of just submission and losing from a place of humility and strength and love compassion now we're in the right place to start dealing with the details which are very necessary to get into but we have the right order go to the last slide there for us I think it's one more is there one more slide? 
There we go. This is where we need to stop today. And in our heart of hearts, commit to building these attitudes and perspectives and actions into our lives. You all stand with me. We're going to just bring this before the Lord in prayer. James says, when you've got this position, this disposition, then you don't operate from a place of pride. The last couple of verses just talks about how we, how we operate from a perspective of pride. But if we operate from a, a humble disposition, we rightly discern the future. We rightly discern our own strengths and our own plans and we keep them in submission to the Lord's will we don't elevate that above God and I think that's where we end off today is by committing to the Lord that God I will bring my will in submission to your will and I will humble myself before you so that when we're together and in harmony you can start help me dealing with the practicalities of how to live this Christian life out in the midst of all sorts of conflict that is out there so that people ultimately will see you. Ultimately, they will get to know your goodness that might also lead them to repentance and lead them to come into a relationship with you as well. It starts with you and I really humbling ourselves and accepting His ways above our own. So let's do that today. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, that's our, that's our main thing today is we just want to come and recognize that we've probably approached conflict from a, a mindset of competition that was born from a, a desire to just please our own needs and our own will. But today we want to come and submit our will to you and say, God, have your way in our lives, Lord. Have your way in our lives. God, help us to to see first your desire in every situation of conflict so that we might align ourselves with you first. We want to commit to that, God. And we pray and ask, God, Holy Spirit, that you'll remind us and show us. And and in the the moment we're about to miss it, just help bring to remembrance this moment that we will, will, and we will just pause stop ourselves and just ask am I submitting to God's way of dealing with this now knowing full well that you want to deal with it absolutely but that when you guide us and when your leadership leads your product will be received we want to submit ourselves to that Father and ask you to teach us better how to handle conflict so that people might see you in us, might be drawn to you in us. Mm, Lord, and that we might continue to walk in your favor and not be in opposition to you. We might see you break open doors and opportunities and things for us that we could have never done ourselves. Why? Because we're walking alongside you. We have the majority behind us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen.